60 Books, Week 41. This week's book is a hefty novel, some 730 pages, published in 2005 when it was also long-listed for the Booker Prize, but facing heavyweight competition from the likes of Ian McEwan and Julian Barnes that year, did not make the shortlist. The author Harry Thompson was something of a Renaissance man. He was a gifted comedy television producer, responsible for shows such as Have I Got News For You, The Ali G Show, Nevermind The Buzzcocks, and had cut his teeth in the regular 6.30pm comedy Half Hour on BBC Radio 4. He also wrote biographies of the comic Peter Cook, Private Eye's founding editor Richard Ingram, and the father of Tintin, the Belgian cartoonist Hergé. Quite how he also found time to become a travel journalist and take the trips necessary to write his first, and sadly his only, novel. I'm not sure. Thompson was diagnosed with lung cancer the year that this week's book was published and died in November of that same year, aged only 45. The novel that he left behind is This Thing of Darkness. The title is a quotation from Shakespeare's The Tempest about Caliban, but the plot and characters throw up several possible interpretations. The book is about dark places, unknown and unfamiliar terrain, both physical and psychological. Thompson's focus is Robert Fitzroy, who, at 23, was appointed captain of the Beagle in late 1828. Its previous captain, Pringle Stokes, had committed suicide on the coast of Patagonia, driven to extremes by low rations, high winds and the barren country that he was meant to be surveying. Fitzroy is in Rio when the Beagle draws up. He is lieutenant to Admiral Otway, well-connected, aristocratic and a generally impressive young man. He has served already for nine years since the age of 12, achieved an unprecedented 100% in the exams he took at the Naval College in Portsmouth, and is also likeable, well-read, sensitive and respectful of his fellow men. The moment I fell in love with this book was in chapter three. Thompson describes a pampero, a sudden storm that arises almost out of nowhere when a blast of polar air clashes with warmer air, particularly prevalent around the estuary of the Rio Plata, uh, the estuary that divides Argentina and Uruguay. Thompson beautifully captures so many aspects of the experience. Fitzroy's total inexperience, his confusion between the message delivered by his hitherto reliable barometer, still suggesting that everything will be fine, and the visible danger as the clouds pile high, the sky darkens and the wind picks up. The absolute horror of being in a small, a tiny brig in the midst of a vast, turbulent ocean. The misery of working to manage the boat without it foundering, without losing too many men overboard or smashed against the boat itself. The seeming interminability of the storm and the incredible majesty of this extraordinary experience. Today, you can go onto YouTube and track down a brief film of the crew of a modern clipper wrestling with their sails as a pampero breaks, lifts and crashes over them, leaving the sail they did not manage to furl in shreds. It is a terrifying few minutes on a boat only 15 feet smaller than the Beagle. 
What Thompson depicts is hellish and terrifying. You can get a taste of this if you click on the link in my blog, That Reading Writing Thing. But equally terrifying, perhaps more so, is a different spectre that haunts Fitzroy. In addition to the suicide Pringle Stokes, Fitzroy is also connected to Viscount Castlereagh, the former Prime Minister, subject to deep depressive troughs. During one of these, in 1823, Castlereagh slit his throat with a penknife. And Thompson reconstructs from the historical record a strange episode during Fitzroy's first voyage on the Beagle, surveying and mapping the islands and channels of Tierra del Fuego and the Magellan Strait. The Beagle had two small whaling boats. One is sent out on a subsidiary mapping mission but goes missing, along with four crew members. Fitzroy, already low on sleep with a strong sense of responsibility for his men and an often rigid approach to his command, is absolutely determined to recover both his men and the whaler. The men are found. They were stranded when the whaler was taken. One of them was murdered by the locals. But however hard and fast Fitzroy's party works to track down the missing whaleboat, all that is ever discovered are occasional bits of detritus, ropes, a belaying pin, a lantern or some other minor piece of equipment. This tips Fitzroy into a frenzy. He is determined to exact revenge or justice on the thieves, or if they cannot be found, any local who crosses his path. He passes the point of rationality and enters into a heightened state where he cannot be reasoned with. His thoughts are disembodied, grandiose. He believes, his God, he believes that God is speaking to him and through him. He experiences a bizarre clarity of sight. And then once back on the beagle has a terrible night where fear and dread had come in the dark, had choked him and mocked him, but now they were gone and shame and embarrassment flooded his mind. Even though the madness has passed, Fitzroy experiences, as Thompson puts it, a crushing disappointment that the tiny glimpse he had been given of something infinitely strange and wonderful was now snatched away from him forever. As he comes round, speaking to his lieutenant, he discovers that it is over 30 hours since he has been in what the lieutenant and ship's surgeon have both described as a delusional fit. Over the following days, he considers his job, in Thompson's words, to chart the wilderness, to list it and catalogue it, that it might be tamed and civilised to bring the primordial darkness under control. But what of the darkness inside him was that to be tamed? When I read this thing of darkness the first time, it was the issue of taming the wilderness that intrigued me, the civilization element, the interplay between the British soldiers, the imperial outlook of the British naval officers and their men, their sense of innate superiority to the indigenous people they encounter, the Fuegians, the arrogance of the act of naming mountains, bays, beaches and rivers after themselves and their friends and cousins and sweethearts. When I first began travelling as a child and a young woman in the 1970s and 1980s, I had a sense that there might yet be undiscovered bournes, unnamed and unknown wilderness. There felt as though there still might be some connection between our modern world 
and explorers of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in search of spices, silks, furs, new trade routes and the anthropophagi. This sense of possibility and excitement persisted, perhaps because my boyfriend for much of my 20s was an anthropologist who travelled to the Arctic, as mentioned in the Arctic Dreams podcast back in week 24. Mark was funded to travel to a remote part of Greenland. Initially, I thought I might try to visit him and investigated the journey. Fly to Copenhagen, catch another flight to Nuuk, take a helicopter up the west coast to Apernavik, and then a boat to somewhere else on Baffin Bay ending in Vik or Wak or Ute. The name Savasivik rings a bell, but I couldn't swear to it. When I discovered that the journey itself would take up to a week and cost £4,000 one way, I felt that my annual leave and meagre savings were better served visiting my mum in Madrid. By the time I came to read this thing of darkness, the miles had racked up. In 2002, we visited Fistera, Cape Finisterre, at the end of Galicia, which for years gave its name to the sea area south of Biscay and had just been renamed Fitzroy in honour of Captain Robert Fitzroy. I'd read by then the origin of species and extracts from the Voyage of the Beagle. Google Maps also launched in 2005, changing that sense of our chipping away at geographical boundaries and sites. Suddenly, like an iceberg carving from a glacier, all the world could be known, seen, inspected. Whilst it was fascinating to look at satellite images of one street or follow Google cars around suburban places in mysterious locations, the mysteries and wonders of our world seemed to me diminished, less magical, more accessible. Thompson's book restored in me that sense of wonder and awe. He describes not just Patagonia, but also the Falklands, the Galapagos, Tahiti and New Zealand, and Brazil, my now home. And of course, he tells the story of the unlikely and deep friendship between Robert Fitzroy and Charles Darwin. Fitzroy, on his return to Portsmouth, is then commissioned by the Navy in the person of Captain Francis Beaufort to undertake a variety of missions, to run a chronometric line around the world, accurately fixing points around the globe in relation to each other, a complete chain of measurements. He must also survey the Patagonian coast, the Falklands, and conduct a further inquiry in the Pacific about the origin of coral reefs, with a final task of piloting and testing the scales that Beaufort has just devised to measure wind strength and meteorological observations. And he has his own personal mission, to return to Tierra del Fuego, the three surviving Fuegians who he had brought to London just over a year before. He also decides that he must recruit a companion. He has in mind any young scientist with an interest in geology and natural sciences who will, he hopes, keep him from succumbing to the madness that previously gripped him. That young companion turns out to be the somewhat chaotic Charles Darwin, aged 22, who has tried medicine, discovered in Edinburgh the study of geology and plant classification, but is in the midst of doing a British a Bachelor of Arts so that he can take holy orders. Although in many ways they are opposites, 
Darwin and Fitzroy find in each other shared humour, interests and inclinations, and Darwin soon also wins acceptance from the other officers and seamen on the ship. When the official ship surgeon McCormick, possibly foisted onto Fitzroy by Captain Beaufort, discovers that Fitzroy has taken Darwin ashore in Bahia, allowing him to collect specimens and make land surveys, he is livid and demands that Fitzroy dismiss Darwin immediately. Pushed too far by McCormick, especially when the surgeon claims that uh, all philosophical debate on board should fall strictly under my jurisdiction as ship's surgeon, Fitzroy accepts McCormick's inflamed resignation with alacrity, somewhat to McCormick's astonishment. Muttering threats like a pantomime villain, McCormick clears the way for Darwin and Fitzroy to continue their voyage, although they then fall out almost immediately in an absolutely monumental row over slavery. Fitzroy, chastened, sends an apology via Lieutenant Sullivan to Darwin which Darwin fully accepts, remarking of the captain to Sullivan, if he does not kill himself, he will achieve remarkable things. But the true thing of darkness that lurks within Fitzroy eventually does seize him. He fulfilled both aspects of Darwin's prophecy, achieving remarkable things, notably the long-range shipping forecast. But he also did kill himself. There are hints all the way through the novel that this will be his ultimate fate, and like his uncle Castlereagh, he succumbed to depression and slit his own throat at the age of 59. It was discovered that over the course of his life, he had essentially spent his own funds worth more in modern times than £610,000 on refitting ships, buying equipment and bailing out the Met Office when it was underfunded in the mid-19th century. A collection had to be taken to ensure the income of his second wife and their child, to which Darwin contributed. Rereading the book has been an absolute joy this past 10 days. Thompson crammed in incident after incident, place after place, capturing the lush jungle of the Mata Atlantica alongside the windswept Patagonian plains, bringing to rich individual life the three indigenous people from Tierro del Fuego, Fugia, Jemmy Button and York Minster, depicting the difficulties and discomforts of life on board a small boat with insufficient room for its 74 inhabitants. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And now, 18 years after its first appearance, it is as page-turning and compulsive as ever. Next week, join me to discuss another big fat page-turning novel, one I have taught with great enjoyment, written by a novelist who sadly seems to have vanished into the ether since her last book, The Paying Guests, published nine years ago. Join me for a look at the brilliant fingersmith, Sarah Waters, third.